Uh, hi folks, here we are, we are in the borders. I'm down at Abbotsford, home of Sir Walter Scott, myself and Ronnie Young. Um, we're here, uh, we are recording a podcast uh, on, on Walter Scott. Podcast, uh, podcast, uh, podcast. Yeah, podcast, podcast, depending yes. on how these pictures turn out. Um, on Walter Scott, because we wanted to, this is a much maligned writer, I think it's fair yes. to say. Um, in some cases, not even forgotten. What's worse than being ignored? You know, some people don't even you know think about it. But here are it's a wonderful, really is a wonderful visitor centre. And that covered in scaffolding behind us is Abbotsford, his uh, baronial home. Is that a fair way of? I think that's a fair enough uh, Quite a stunning uh, uh, piece of architecture uh, built on books. You know, so um, so we wanted to kind of re. Not to rediscover him, but just re-examine him and see whether it's fair, I think, what's happened to him. Um, so you'll see what we decide upon there. But we're joined by an inspiration to both of us, I suppose, uh, Professor Douglas Gifford, who's the honorary librarian for Abbotsford, and he tells us we just kind of take a back seat. We're hoping to take a back seat and let Douglas do his bit, I think. Do, do his magic, you know. Do his uh, magic, and, uh, and we can just uh, listen to him and enjoy the scenery. So we hope that you do too. Hello everyone, uh, this is the, uh, a special um, Scotsway podcast in conjunction with the Association for Scottish Literary Studies and uh, Abbotsford, which is the home of Sir Walter Scott and that's because we're going to do a podcast called Scott and His Legacy, The History of the Scottish Novel. Um, before I get into what we're going to do, I'm going to introduce uh, Professor Douglas Gifford of Glasgow University who is the Honorary Librarian uh, for the House of Abbotsford, the Faculty of Advocates, is that the correct? Yes. And a, a familiar face to everyone, uh, or familiar voice to everyone, I should say. <laughs> uh, this is what it looked like, unfortunately. <laughs> Ronnie Young. Um, and before we go into the, the legacy of Scott and the history of the, not just the Scottish novel, I think, the wider novel in general, um, we want to talk a little bit about um, Abbotsford and a and the link with Sir Walter Scott. So Douglas, tell us a little bit about the history of, of, of Abbotsford House and how Scott came to settle here, if you like. I suppose we've got to start with Scott, born in 1771 in Edinburgh, came down to this area when he had polio and conceived his great love of border lore and tradition down here, and especially he loved the tweet. So when he was more successful as a lawyer, he had a cottage at Ashes Steel. Uh, in fact, he had two cottages before last week, Ashes Steel, and then he bought a place called, uh, dubiously, Cartley Hall, or locally, Clarty Hall. Right. Because <laughs> it, was, it was down in a bog. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, basically, that was a very small uh, project. It, it was a cottage, an escape place. Right. But Scott had ambitions. He added and added to it over the years. He bought it in 1811. He added to it over the years and ended up, by 1826, having built the impressive pile that... We will see, uh, yes. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, Abbotsford is uh, in renovation, but they're hoping it'll be reopened in Easter. The, the, the renovation project will be completed by the April, and books will come back down installed again and the whole ambitious project will then with, you know with the landscaping and the yeah. visitor centre will be complete. Um, it is an amazing uh, collection it's a real uh, legacy that he left in terms of not just the books and the library but um, all the, the, the artifacts as well I mean he was obviously a, a collector of some uh, he couldn't stop, let's put it this way, once he started, he, he seemed tacky to fingers, to, he, yes, yes, he was that's tacky, a very tacky finger. The, maybe another place to start is with the 1838 winding up meeting to settle Scott's debts. Right. It, one way or the other, all his debts were paid off. The deed of entail that settled the future of Abbotsford, they left the house and grounds to his descendants. They weren't all Scots, they became the Maxwell Scots in the 1850s and new bits were added to the house, a chapel, etc. And thereafter, the house was in the ownership of the family until the 19... 
1972. Right. The, well, it happened, the house was still in the ownership of the family, but... And members of the family still stayed there. And, and members of the family still stayed there, Dame Jean and Mrs. Patricia Scott, they, until their relatively recent deaths. Basically what happened, though, was the establishment of a dual situation where the faculty of advocates owned the books and many of the artefacts and on the other hand the house had family artefacts and the bricks and artefacts of itself. That has developed now to the stage where there are two trusts that run Abbotsford. I'm an honorary librarian for the faculty of advocates mm -hmm. looking after the care and conservation of the books and, and the artefacts. And under the Duke of Buckley, there's a, an inspired group that have managed to get all this going. Because yeah, we should say we're filming this and recording at the new, uh, recently opened Abbotsford Visitor Centre. Um, and it's the first time I've been here, and it's, a, it's an incredible uh, undertaking. Um, fantastic exhibition downstairs. Uh, was it difficult to get the money to do this? Well, I think it must be quite a... Well, the, much of the credit for this goes to the chief executive of Abbotsford here, Jason Dyer, mm -hmm. who, was, who initially was fundraising and then showed so many talents that he ran everything like that. I think it would be fair to say that he had a massive contribution to if you seek a monument, look around. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tribute to, to, the, to, in a sense, the legacy of Scott that we're going to go and, and talk about uh, inside in the wall. But um, just to go back, you said that he had the, a kind of small getaway, but yet he left us with this incredible house and collection. So how did, how did this progress? There's a debate about this. One argument says that Scott was over-ambitious right. and that he overspent and had a hand in his own ruin. Another argument, two or three arguments, another one says that when Constable, the publisher, the, the House of Constable fell, yeah. the domino effect wiped out Scott as well. We've seen that in modern banking, things of like course. that, the, the cards all fall and people that are involved are caught up in the whole thing. More recently, though, people have seen that Scott was actually a, a trained accountant mm -hmm. with his legal background, and he knew what he was doing, and to that extent, he's not responsible for, for what happened in yeah. 1826, the collapse of 1826. That said, there's no doubt that he, he was a, a curious antiquarian, yes. you know, in the bits and the buildings and the the mixture of architectural styles and the, the things he collected like Rob Roy's purse and, Phenomenal. and a piece of oat cake from Culloden and, <laughs> and armour everywhere yes. from Waterloo and that he collected from the field of Waterloo shortly after the battle. Mm -hmm. it, I suppose it's unique that way in the sense that he just loved everything from the past. Yeah, yes. And it, he says at one point, I don't suppose that this will have meaning for so many people other than myself. Yeah. You know, a personal association, and that's the way he was about books as well. He had friends all over Britain that were collecting material and songs. Because his collection of his books, his library, is astonishing when you think this was at a time when you, you know, there wasn't three for two and uh, Waterstones or something. These were difficult to get a hold of. And a wide, wide collection, widely read. Yeah. I'm just going to pause for a moment mm -hmm. over that one and think about it. He was very, very widely read. The, the, the library itself of 9,000, 10,000 volumes covers everything from Icelandic voyages to the super, supernatural. Yes, something a tremendous like collection of supernatural. collection of the supernatural. A very wide ranging in terms of modern British and European literature. Quite outstanding. We've discovered Lindsay Levy, the, the, who's been working on, on a new uh, Yep. Lindsay Levy, who's been working on a new catalogue for mm -hmm. the library, an online catalogue, has discovered some astonishing things. You know, the, the Marcus of Argyle begging for his life, a letter <laughs> to, to the king, the, all sorts of ancient, the most outstanding of which is probably the Gilda Legenda, described by some as the most important find in medieval studies since the wow. 1930s. 
This is the link between the Latin lives of the saints in Europe and Caxton, mm -hmm. and had not been located, and finally it was discovered amongst right. Scots books. So, and there's endless things like that that occur. That well, I think this is the thing to remember. Um, for all that people come to, to Abbotsford now, we've, we've came many times and brought students and visitors, mm -hmm. and they're always amazed at the swords and the collections of armour and everything. But it's the books, I think, that, that you're always drawn back to because this gives a background to his own work. And uh, we're going to go inside in a minute and get a heat, but we are going to talk about the books themselves and his influence particularly perhaps greater than anyone else, it could be said, on not only the Scottish novel, but the novel in general. So um, we've moved inside to, um, well, really this is a good advert for the visitor centre showing you outside and in. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, the legacy of Walter Scott uh, on the novel and perhaps the major question to start with is, how do you, Douglas, think that um, Scott pioneered the development of the novel, either Scottish or otherwise. Yes. It was a very interesting journey for Scott. He started off, of course, with the minstrelsy of the Scottish borders and the border ballads, and of course ballads tell stories. Yep. Then he moved on from the border ballads to the Lay of the Last Minstrel, which is set in the borders and his clan warfare between Kerrs and Elliots and such like, and then widened his canvas. But then, by about 1810, ten years on, he was losing out to Lord Byron, right. who had, had <laughs> captured the public imagination of completely. And Scott, the story goes that Scott found early chapters of Waverley amidst fishing tackle yes. in a drawer. Mm. don't know how true that is. <laughs> Although it's certainly true that the early chapters of Waverley in 1814 are certainly in the north of England. Yeah. Yes. And then there's a gap and we move past the Blue Mountains mm -hmm. into the Highlands and the border. Yeah, countries. they do seem separate, yeah, don't they? They yeah. do seem separate, yeah. But there's no question that Waverley just radically changed things. In Joseph Andrews, Fielding had said that his aim was to portray manners and not men. And Scott very significantly changes all that around and says, I am going to portray men, not manners. Immediately you do that, you're talking about individual psychology, and of course, the other thing that Scott's famous for is history. Mm -hmm. So history and psychology, utterly new. The whole idea of Edinburgh University was teaching much of this. The idea that history was something that had to be understood, cause and effect. Now, that was not the case before. No, it was a radical. Like David Hume had said that you know the the Covenanters were just fanatics. Scott in old mortality does not treat them like that. He understands the tendencies. Yeah. This is our modern way of thinking. Mm -hmm. yes. And the obverse of reading history like that is to realise it's made by individual people. Yeah. Psychology of people that make the big picture and the big picture that swallows up the, the small people as well. Mm -hmm. History and psychology then radically new in, in fiction. Mm -hmm. I think he was also very, very new in the way he treated landscape and symbolism. Of course Wordsworth was dealing with landscape in the Lake District and you know the, all over the world he was seeing nature as something that was God inspired. Yeah. The imagination yeah. of man grappled with, with that inspiration. Scott though sees landscape in a much more both intimate and majestic way in the sense that all the way through his Highland novels, his border novels, what's happening is Rather like the novels of Thomas Hardy, the landscape is playing a part in the action. Yes. Landscape is deeply important from the point of view of people making choices, for sure. example. In all mortality, uh, Henry Morton has to make a choice between going into the high moors of Lanarkshire or down into the fertile bits of Clydesdale. And Scott makes these two places symbolic of the royalists in Clydesdale and the Covenanters up in the bare, bleak moors singing mm -hmm. Their hymns and such like, and that sense of landscape emerged first of all in, in Waverley, where when Edward Waverley has been taken into the Highlands, he crosses over what landscape painters were to paint time and again: the Pass of Ballybrough, yes. yes. the Scottish mountains, etc. He inspired people like Turner and such mm -hmm. like. You can almost see him. Um, 
giving them the template to say, well, the eagle exactly. over the hill, and the, yeah. it's all in there. It's well, your eagle no. over the hill is very opposite because yeah. when you come to the symbolism, there's a wonderful early moment when Waverley's been taken over this pass and an eagle flies catching the rays of the dying sun and Evan Dew, who's conducting Waverley upstairs, there's an, an urn, what you southerners call an eagle, I'll have him for the rare supper, and he fires and he misses. The eagle, undisturbed, flies south. Yeah. Up from the gorge next to them rise kites and carrion birds screaming in great tumult of wildlife. And what Scott was actually doing there, instinctively, was saying, the eagle, the the king of birds will not be disturbed by this. It's anticipating the Jacobite rebellion. Right. There will be some discord coming up from the, the debts, yes. but it, it won't go on forever. Uh-huh. It, it will have a gloomy ending. And he does that time and again. Mm-hmm. Probably the outstanding example is in the heart of Midlothian, mm-hmm. where the novel is totally structured around the fact there's a sick heart of Scotland, which mm-hmm. is the Tolbooth Jail yes. in the Royal Mile, and there's a regenerative heart of Scotland, which is Jeannie Dean. Yep. She is nature's voice, set against... So there is the... It's a very interesting thing about the Scottish novel, that so often it has ordinary people at its heart. Yes. You know, whether it's a David Balfour or a Chris Guthrie. Uh-huh. Yep. You know, there's people that are not missing ears, as in Dickens. Yeah. They're simply ordinary people that represent and can represent the very best in Scotland. Yeah. And Jeannie Dins is the heart of Midlothian. She is the way forward yeah. for Scotland. And novel after novel, he has that kind of symbolism. And that's another um, contribution that Scott makes to the novel. It's the development of the anti-hero because at the heart of the historical yes, novel, indeed, indeed. George Lucas recognises that you have a character who isn't heroic. It's somebody who's ordinary. And the historical novel is about how ordinary people get caught in history. And history is... Yeah. You remember he says that I've, in, in Edward Waverley I've created a character that nobody but myself will really like. He's uh-huh. an insipid hero. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He's, There's a point to that, yeah. Uh, both sides and he's just caught up in it. Yes. The, the influence of Don Quixote is there. Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> the other consistent but wrong view of Scott is that he created, as Edwin Muir said, Scotland with two T's. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, and that he's responsible for the tourist, the rise in tourism. Yes. He's responsible for having a second coronation for King George yes. in Edinburgh in 1822. Nothing could be further from the truth because if people read these novels, they realise yes. that Scott sets up romance only to undercut it yes. underneath. In, in Waverley, the, the Highland chieftain Fergus Vichian Vaughan mm-hmm. is actually a kind of psychopath who offers his sister to try and get Waverley to join his rebellion yes. and who at the end of the novel is thinking of deserting Bonnie Prince Charles because Bonnie Prince Charles won't give him an earldom. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, mm-hmm. What Scott is portraying is a realistic side to the Highlands. For example, Fergus has... Mm-hmm. A, a fellow, Donald Bean Lean, mm. who's actually a con man in London yeah, uh-huh. and using the newspapers in London to, to circulate lies about Waverley. And he but, sets these up, you've got these romantic visions, which are usually just Waverley's reading of the situation yes. because he's a romantic reader. Yes. And then it's on the cut. He goes into this romantic expedition, expedition into the, the Highlands and its sublime landscape. Um, he's actually chasing some missing cows. He's creating the landscape yeah. that he wants. Yes, yes. he yes. creates in his own head. So it's not Scott romanticising the landscape, it's his reader. Yeah. Scott yeah. Actually says more than 15 times in that novel mm-hmm. that Waverley's life is a dream. Yes. And it's the romantic, the young romantic young man uh-huh. seeing the Highlands as he wants uh-huh. to see. Yes, yeah, an idealism and it's an ideal yeah. view. Oh. And he projects it. Yeah. And he projects it. Meanwhile, they're all mm-hmm. setting him up. Yeah. I think this is trouble. when when, when mm-hmm. uh, readers go to Scott and they think that they have preconceived ideas and then you have someone, as you say, like this character who is using newspapers and they say, well, surely newspapers? This is far too modern for a Scott yes, novel. Exactly. You know, or yeah. Rob Roy, where he's in, uh, he goes um, up the Glasgow High Street and, and you think, well, but no, Rob Roy, he should be running the hills and he's, there's uh-huh. so much more in them. I mean, these are epic, absolutely epic uh-huh. novels and people seem to prejudge them thinking that it's it's all set in, in uh, kind of uh, idealised, as you say, Duke Scotland. Actually, in mentioning Rob Roy, you can sum so much of this up in the sense that if you want symbolism, there's the moment on the bridge over the River Clyde where 
Rob Roy from right. the Highlands meets Bailey Nickel Javi in the dark. And this is the they are cousins, and this is the two sides of Scotland having to hide their allegiance to each other. Mm. But blood is thicker than water, and Bailey Nickel Javi will help Rob Roy. Yeah. And if you follow that through, Rob Roy himself is a very sophisticated operator oh. who speaks impeccable English. He's a man of feeling almost. You know? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's at home down in London as well, you know. So there's the realism and the romance, the bridge at midnight, but what is underneath the darkness as well. And I always think Rob Roy maybe is how Scott would like to have seen himself, at home yes. in two different areas, you know. Well, you remember the, the, the famous thing where he said, had I been alive at the time of the Jacobite Rebellion, my heart would have taken me out for Prince Charles, but my head would have told me to go elsewhere. <laughs> you know? Heart and head dichotomy. And that's the theme of all the novels. They're all past versus present. Mm-hmm. The major novels are nearly always an element of civil war in them. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do some of the great figures like Columba or mm-hmm. Alexander III. He focuses on a Scotland divided. And it's a story about a broken country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And both sides. It may look beautiful, but there's a hell of a mess going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You think, I mean, you were talking about the perception that he, he brought tartanry to, to, to Scotland and the whole idea of, of a certain image which endures to this day. Yeah. Perhaps that he was a victim of his own success in that way. But for those people that don't know, um, and the visit of, of King George, just how did that unfold? I always think that. The other thing you've got to realise, that encapsulates the romance as well. Scott would see the romance of, and it was, kitsch. You know, (laughs) George dressing up with flesh-coloured tights under his kilt, this bulky man. Uh But on the other hand, this was the first visit of a British monarch to Scotland for about 160-odd years. Scotland was the untrusted country. Mm -hmm. And the realist Scott thought, if he could set this up, mm-hmm. this would link the two partner countries. And that's important to realise. Scott saw them as united, but they were two different nations. Mm-hmm. And in fact, other people have pointed out that when he got, when he was worried, for example, about Westminster inflicting real troubles on the Scottish financial system, Scott said, well, if you don't sort this out, in his famous letters of Malachi Malagra, then the fiery cross may have to be raised again. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... He, he had, you could push him so far. Yeah, yeah. And then... Mm. Eventually the heart, perhaps, was going to say, you know, you know. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and I, there is this perception, I think, uh, which endures that Scott is someone who wrote about a certain time, uh, and in a certain time, and therefore his, his relevance has dwindled over the years. There's no doubt that his uh, um, writing was attacked, not just in, uh, on this side of the Atlantic, but overseas as well. Uh, um, people saw him as being... Uh, uh, the 20th century was very... Yes. Uh, Edmund Cruelty. Muir, yes. for example, did not like Scott. And he was very influential in his book, Scott in Scotland, yeah. in saying that Scott moved about historical furniture and such like. And mm-hmm. Ian Forster, very influential London critic said yeah. that, oh dear me, the Waverley novels tell a story, and then, and then. <laughs> Again, totally unfair. Muir just didn't understand Scott, and I don't think Foster really wanted to. Him at all. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Carlyle had a hand in that too, you know, because he made the famous criticism in the 1840s and 50s that the sick heart will find no healing here. Mm-hmm. That Scott didn't really probe people and understand people. Again, I don't think that's a misunderstanding of what Scott was about. Right. He, he was looking at people in history mm-hmm. and portraying them in their responses and looking at huge political machinery going yes. on around about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, what's your feelings on Scott as a writer? Um, if I can ask that of you, um, you know, you, you, in terms of how you think he is, has been received and is received today, uh, and what do you think? It's a well, fair there's another aspect too. I mean, there is the argument could be Douglas's argument. I'm not sure that um, Scott's reputation declines in inverse proportion to Jane Austen. 
Okay, okay, so as, right. As Austin Industry rises in the 20th century, Austin Industry, I like yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Culminating in Merchant Ivory productions and the kind sure. of films and TV adaptations we've seen. Scotland hasn't had that treatment to no, such an extent. No, he has And we see people in, well, within the Scottish literary tradition, we see uh, writers where who have been adapted frequently, Stevenson for example, uh, but Scott, hmm, not, there's been a few films, but perhaps not recently, you know, and there's also a question about the modern reader and the modern reader's sensibilities yes, and yes. what they get from Scott, I mean, it's challenging, I think I've even said on this podcast that yeah. Scott can be challenging for the modern reader, um, whereas Austin perhaps isn't so difficult, yeah, um, I don't know. I wonder if you know we're talking about the importance Mm. of landscape. Yeah. And I think for some people, the landscape hides what um, Douglas said at the beginning was that the individual, the the history and the drama comes from the the small individual whose life is being changed by political events, but these political events are given their context by the individual. It always comes back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think that... I think many novels still do that. Um, it's interesting, I think, that Scott's put aside when that still is important today. I think you would have, one would have to admit, though, that Scott, the antiquarian, can't help but obfuscate much of his fiction with what you could call notes and details yes. and descriptions. I mean, every novel has a whole series of notes to it, and sometimes they're in, actually in the text. Yes. Uh, styles have changed. But having said that, uh-huh. I think we've got to bring into the picture the Scottish failure to educate people in their own history and their mm-hmm. own background. Mm-hmm. I think that, in fact, to read a Scott novel now, language has changed, people don't know the history, the antiquarian element within it. I, I honestly don't think Scott now is accessible to school children. Right. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I would say yes, I senior see school children. But on the other hand, how much of Shakespeare is accessible yeah, to school children until they're... When I was teaching, and I, I found it was only in the first mm-hmm. year that people began to understand or grapple with with Shakespeare, yeah. because the language has changed, yeah. the ideas have changed. Mm-hmm. That's inevitable, mm-hmm. but... Well, Ronnie mentioned um, Stevenson, and here is a writer who is still very popular, and whose uh, uh, popularity endures and widens, I think. So, but Scott would have been an influence on Stevenson. Oh, yes. Abso- I mean, Scott was uh, absolutely the prime influence for Stevenson, John Buchan, Neil Monroe, mm-hmm. S.R. Crockett. There's a whole school of Scottish historical fiction that comes from Scott that has not been properly recognised yeah. yet, you know, because... Basically, it's a it's a fiction that criticises Scotland in a, for its failings, for its religious bigotry, for its political infighting, for its inability to reconcile Highlands and Lowlands. And that's, these are all Scots themes. Yes. And in Neil Monroe's The New Road and John Buchan's Witchwood, these are all the major themes. Where and and also in in Lewis Classic Gibbon's Sunset Song, gossip and malice. You know that's. Stevenson and Buchan I think just as these writers are not recognised Neil yeah. Monroe properly how many people know John Buchan's historical fiction yes. you know, the, which, which is a magnificent novel mm-hmm. and S.R. Crockett's best novels have become answers are yeah. very very good mm-hmm. yeah. there is a rich uh, tradition which seems yes. to have been perhaps ignored the wrong word, but just perhaps forgotten, just overlooked, and it's something I think that mm. people who go on to, to look at the Scottish literature in the future and present mm. day, there's so much that hasn't been looked on, that there's exactly a really so. rich history exactly that will so. be there. Mm-hmm. Exactly so, the, the, it, certainly in my research period as a student down at Bailey, there was no interest really in Scottish literature yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. The nearest I could get to studying Scottish literature was the, mis- the biographical aspects of the miscellaneous prose works of Walter Scott. Mm-hmm. There you go. At no. the age of 22, <laughs> the most attractive thing. Mm-hmm. You know. No, that's true. One question maybe, if somebody was coming to, to Walter Scott for the first time, which novels would you recommend to them? I would start with the short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Two Drovers. I, I yep. was teaching the Two Drovers down in Galashiels Academy just recently, and I sold it to them as a cowboy story. And the thing <laughs> oh, it is, <laughs> it's a cowboy story. They, and the whole focus of it 
it's Scott made taut and concise. Oh. There's not a wrong word in it. Yeah. Your point about Stevenson, I think, is very interesting. You, you know, Stevenson's so well read. Somewhere between the early 1800s and the 1880s, style just changes. changes yeah. And Stevenson mm-hmm. gets this, is it American influence? Well, I don't know where it comes from, but Stevenson reads like a modern. Yes. He is a modern yes. writer. Well, again, we're back again. Um, I'm not asked to break with it, um, as you can patently see, and I've also had a bit of a change of costume just to come in from the cold. Uh, got joined again by Douglas Gifford here, and we're going to talk a bit more about Scott and his legacy. I'm going to ask you about Scott and his legacy. Now, we've moved uh, to Glasgow University this time, um, where we do have a small Scott connection here. We have Scott's fireplace, which is taken from his house in the George Square in Edinburgh and installed here in Hepburn House which is now the, um, the Scottish Literature Department in Glasgow University. So um, we're here to talk a bit about Scott. We're going to talk about Scott and his legacy. We're going to talk about Scott and some of the other figures in Scottish literature. And who better to start with, I think, than Robert Burns, because we're here in Glasgow. This is now the centre for Robert Burns' studies housed in this building. So I think, you know, if we're looking at Scott and we're looking at Scott and Scottish literature, you know, He's one of the main figures, I guess, alongside Burns. I mean, what can we say about Scott in relation to Burns? Well, I suppose the starting point is Edwin Muir's poem, Scotland 1941, where mm-hmm. he antagonised a lot of people by talking about mummified house gods and their dusty niches, Burns and Scott, sham bards of a sham nation. Absolutely. There was a real kind of reaction, especially, I think, against Scott, although I do think Muir was completely wrong in his diagnosis. Yes. Mm-hmm. One of the things we are doing is collaborating with the people down at Abbotsford mm-hmm. and the Scottish, the Burns National Museum mm-hmm. to present collaborative events mm-hmm. to do with Burns and Scott. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be doing Burns and Scott through in Alloway and Scott and Burns <laughs> through in the East. Uh-huh. And that indicates an interesting thing. Scott is not popular with what you could call the man in the street yes. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Whereas Burns is very popular. Absolutely. Now, one of my passionate annoyances about this is that that's a total misreading of, of Scottish culture mm-hmm. because they both respected each other. Yes. Scott profoundly thought that Burns was a very fine and humane mm-hmm. writer mm-hmm. and Burns himself was flattered to meet once in yes. Edinburgh where he was able, when nobody else could to tell uh, Scott was able to tell Burns who had written the poem they were talking about. That's right, that's the famous event in, the, the famous in event. Adam Ferguson's literary salon in Sean's house in Edinburgh. All where the, the good and the great. The literati are assembled. It, it's semi-mythological, that yes, picture, uh-huh, but nevertheless uh-huh. there was a point where they met and, and indeed where uh, Scott saw Burns in a bookshop as yes. well, although mm-hmm. he didn't talk to him that time. But mm-hmm. a gap in time, 1759 is Burns, 1771 birth date of Scott. Yes. So Scott was a very young man. Uh-huh. But the library episode has quite a lot of Burns material, right. including uh-huh. a, a manuscript of Tam Shanter, uh-huh. which is edited, it's in another hand, but it's edited and improved by Robert Burns himself. Yes. You know, so th- uh-huh. clearly, th- you know, this was sent as a real compliment. But the nitty gritty of this is that how silly it is to see them as the polar opposites of Scottish yes. writing. Oh yes, you could say Burns, you know, looking down at the mouse and the daisy, uh, sort of bedded down rurally with a kind of myopic vision from Mm. vernacular Ayrshire. Uh And then on the other hand, Scott, although with the connection to the borders, nevertheless an elite Edinburgh lawyer. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you can see them as opposite. I prefer seeing them as complementary in the sense that Scott is fiction, is the history and the state of Scotland, very politically involved with Scotland. That's not to say Burns isn't, but Burns, rather than urban, is rural. Right. Mm-hmm. And he is looking very, very closely at folk tradition and, and politics of the church of in his own area. So, and at that point, you begin to see the connection. Both are completely against religious bigotry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Both are collectors, very fine and important collectors, some of the greatest collectors, yes. Burns and Johnson's Musical Museum, where mm-hmm. he, he so altruistically gave of his time and his work to that, and Scott in the minstrelsy of the Scottish Borders yes. in the 1790s. Mm-hmm. 
And both of them are profoundly interested in folk tradition. You only need to think of Burns's poem Halloween and then think of the fact that Scott has one of the world's finest collections of popular culture in the chat books, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the voice of the ordinary people. Mm-hmm. So in fact, once you begin, and politics of course, they're profoundly uh-huh. interested in what's going on. Okay, Scott is, appears at first a unionist, yes. but before he was finished, he, he, when there were attacks being made by Westminster on Scotland's finance systems, Burns was saying, well, we may, Scott was saying, we may need to light the fiery cross. Mm-hmm. I don't think it justifies the claim that he was becoming a Scottish nationalist. No, but, no, but, not quite. Yeah. And the other thing is, he's a unionist because he sees two different countries beginning to reconcile their differences. Yes. The famous one that gets people is when Scott in 1822 brings a second coronation for King George yes. up mm-hmm. to Edinburgh. And it is a bit idiosyncratic in Disneyland and kitsch, but it's the first time a monarch has been for 150 odd years up in Scotland. Yes. And Scott is repairing what he sees is the damaging breach between the two countries, a breach of centuries, yes. You know, yes. and trying to heal that. I have argued elsewhere that the theme of the great Waverley novels is recognising the differences and making a, a, a myth uh-huh. for Scotland that regenerates yes. the relationship between the two places. Mm-hmm. Once you go beyond that, I'm not sure where we go after that, I'll pass a moment to think. I was following that line of thought all the way down, but we're almost there, I think. I suppose, yes. So if there's no antagonism between the two, what is the status then of the relationship between Burns and Scott? Well, one of my problems is that I committed myself to Scottish literature 50 years ago because I felt that Burns and Scott dominated completely. And we didn't do Scottish literature in our schools and such like. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's very, very important to use Burns and Scott as exemplars yes. for a very rich culture that has people like Lewis Grassett Gibbon, the great medieval poets, Robert Louis Stevenson, a thriving modern scene. So Burns and Scott, yes, no longer shambars of a sham nation, but exemplars as the, as the apex of what is a very fine literary tradition for such a small country. Yes, so they become figureheads of yes, yes. a really I'd, rich, I'd like vibrant cultural like tradition I'd and like a, perhaps that. a way in for, to allow people to explore exactly. so, other things. In other words, to follow Scott and his legacy, yes. to realise that he starts off tradition in historical fiction, uh-huh. which is a very vigorous separate tradition, which has novels like The Master Ballantrae, mm-hmm. The New Road by Neil Monroe, S.R. Crockett's The Men of the Moss Hags. Novels concerned with the Covenanters and the Jacobites and the problems of Scotland, and it is a Scottish tradition. Yes. John Buchan in Witchwood carries it on, and even the much maligned Nigel Tranter and people like Dorothy Dunnett yes. continue it later, and it, it, it's still there in the present. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's the case. One other aspect that we could look at in terms of, well, I guess this applies to Burns as well as Scott, is the international dimension as well, because Burns, of course, is an internationally recognised figure um, who had an international spread, or still has, Scott also, within, his, uh, within the 19th century and perhaps today, is still an internationally renowned figure. So, I mean, perhaps we could speak about that, about uh, Scott on the international stage. You can do this in two or three layers, as it were. There are over 80 operas mm-hmm. made of the Waverley novels. That's a lot. You know, Lucia's de Lammermoor, about yeah. five or six versions of Rob Roy. Lucia's the most popular one, of course. Heart of Midlothian, all the major novels have more than one opera yeah. written about them by international composers. Uh-huh. So that shows you one level, and the inspiration for painters, for example, Turner, uh-huh. even Constable, endless, Bransky, endless European painters that saw in the Waverley novels. I mean, Turner visited Scott down in Abbotsford, right. and it, you know, the, the whole efflorescence of 19th century landscape painting probably owes, admittedly, something to Ossian as well. Yes. But certainly a huge amount, uh-huh. as does indeed tourism. You know, although Scott didn't start tourism, that started with the Wordsworths and such like, yes. and Ossian earlier. Mm-hmm. But in terms of that impact, 
there's no doubt that Scott opens up Scotland and indeed habits of visiting famous landscapes, as the Wordsworth did too. Mm. But then there's another layer that's very, very important. I was reading a book, a very fine collection of essays on, on Romanticism and the development of Romanticism in the 19th century. And when I looked up the index at the back, there were more entries about Walter Scott than uh-huh. anybody else. Right. But there was no chapter on Scottish Romanticism. There were chapters on Polish and Italian, French, English. So that, in, in other words, it was Hamlet without the prince, in a way. Mm-hmm. And, but then as I read the chapters, I realised what, what acknowledgement was being given to Scott's impact with the rising nationalist movements in Italy, ah. from Italy through Germany to Sweden, the whole impact of Scott's way of structuring national history right. had started an enormous 19th century impulse to explore, collect the minstrelsy, to collect one's own folk ballads, right. to, to look at one's origins, to see where the country owed to tradition in the past. Oh. and. In fact, to such a great extent that uh, the oft-quoted Mark Twain statement that Walter Scott started the American Civil War yes. is, is utterly tongue-in-cheek, of course, but it also <laughs> acknowledges the fact that the patterns of what was happening in Scott's novels, of the colourful past versus the prudent money-making yes. future and present, uh-huh. is a mirror of Southerners and Yankees, yeah. and it's a mirror also of Fenimore Cooper, who was following uh-huh. Scott, you know, with his The Deerslayer and uh-huh. The Last of the Moicans, the past versus the present. Uh-huh. A structure of the way of looking at national development that said uh-huh. that this, as Coleridge said, uh-huh. that this is, said Coleridge, Scott's great achievement, that he recognises that Human history is a confrontation of two mighty principles, conservatism and the strain to keep the past, and progression, mm-hmm. the utter movement of change and progress. Yes, and that's something I think that even the later critics like George Lucas, when looking at the historical novel, recognised in Scott these dynamic elements in history and in, in society. And I, I, I think he probably got it from Edinburgh University because they were very much into what you could call the new history. Yes. Uh, that is to say, where previous critics like David Hume had, in his history of Britain, had said that the, the Covenanters were fanatics, you've only got to look at old mortality to mm. see that Scott then says, why are they fanatics? Mm-hmm. What is it that has led to this? And mm-hmm. Scott is that, I think this is a majestic thing about Scott. Scott is, represents the popularisation of that understanding of history that says there are always reasons. Yes. You do not talk in black and whites. Uh-huh. We, we've never needed Scott's vision as a romantic lawyer almost, prudent and, and, and yet humane, for understanding, for giving tolerance to Northern Ireland, to Muslim versus Christian. You know, that way of saying, what is, why are the reasons for this antagonism? Mm. And that's what the Scott novels are about, even the ones yeah. set in England and abroad. Mm-hmm. Now, just to change tax slightly, I mean, it's one of the things that we keep going back to is it's almost implied that Scott's reputation, there's something wrong with it. That Scott's a malign figure, and I think this has been running through some of our questions. So quite often when discussing Scott, we're on the defensive. And I just wonder if you have sort of closing thoughts on you know, where we go with Scott. We, we, we're looking again at Burns, and we're looking again at the mythology surrounding Burns. And is it time to do that for Scott as well, and to really... Uh, we could start with a positive, of course, uh-huh. and say, look at the two finest literary museums in Scotland, mm-hmm. one in the West, one in the East, and is what's going on there, is there a, a, a rise, as I think there is, obviously, a rise in Scotland's awareness of its literature in schools and elsewhere. Uh, on the other hand, that doesn't address the question of why Burns is so popular and Scott not. I was talking to some Russians down in in, in Abbotsford a while back, and they were saying how much they relished the sentiments of Burns. But I couldn't help but think that, you know, basically in Russia, 
the translation, I would love to be able to see what the translations are like. A man is a man for all that, you know. Is there a, an incorporation of the sentiments rather than the poetry of Burns that uh -huh. makes it so powerful? Mm -hmm. uh, I think possibly. And then on the other hand, you've got Scott. Now, much as I love Scott, I recognise that he's very difficult to use in schools. Mm -hmm. What are the reasons? Well, we didn't do Scottish history in schools no. until very, very recently. Mm -hmm. It's become a component of, of Scottish education. So that what the 19th century would have, much more of an awareness of the sense of history. That, I mean, I wonder how many kids in Glasgow schools now would know anything about the Covenanters, let alone Maybe they would recognise Bonnie Prince, Charles, and yes. Speed Bonnie. And, and perhaps the changes now being instituted in the Scottish it, curriculum exactly. with, with Scottish studies, Scottish history, Scottish literature coming in as part of I think that, study. Although, would, having said that, it, his reputation is high in America and Europe. Yeah. The Americans, I mean, Ian Duncan won the Scottish Book of the Year with his study, Scott and His Shadow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the Americans have. I think the other thing about it is there is, let's be quite honest about this, there is an antipathy or an apathy in English culture which has long dominated our universities and our ideas of what a canon of culture is. Right. And I think that, you know, for example, the Open University in their novel course mm -hmm. did not do a Scott novel. Right. You know, and whatever else you say, Scott is the founding father of the 19th century novel. Uh -huh. Flaubert, Balzac, yeah. Fenimore Cooper, they all recognise that and mm -hmm. they know that Scott is, is the person uh -huh. that has created the modern novel. Jane Austen, yeah. and Scott admired her. You know, she is a great novelist, but I am master of the big bow wow yeah. strain, you know. And now, was, was Scott in the great tradition, the old... Uh, not in Levis, no. 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 Uh, no, again, that was an example of, mm. I, I would say, an Anglo-centric perspective. Yes. And then it was damaged by people like E.M. Forster and Edwin Muir and his books in Scotland. Scotland, 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 Scotland. He saw Scott and an absence rather than a presence. Yes. Whereas you can view that utterly the opposite way and say that Scott is a presence in Scotland that stimulates Stevenson and all the other, mm -hmm. right down to Lewis Grassett Gibbon even. You know, there's mm -hmm. the, the other thing I would say just while I think of that, what did Scott do that way? He set quite relatively ordinary people at the heart of his novels. Jeannie Dean's a cow feeder's daughter mm -hmm. is the heroine of the Heart of Melodian. Mm -hmm. David Balfour is the hero of, you know, he's, he's, he's not a peasant, but, no. but he's poor as well. Mm -hmm. And certainly Chris Guthrie and even James Kelman's right. central mm -hmm. figures. Uh -huh. Scottish fiction has much man. more mm -hmm. of an inheritance of that. But of course in Scott, it's dressed up in the language of its period. Yes. And Scott the antiquarian, we have to admit, is too fond of his notes and incorporating his notes into his text and his, way, and his explanations yeah. through history. There's another way to look at this though. We, just because great writers are not necessarily studied in school, doesn't mean to say, for example, that there is a house to Thomas Carlyle mm -hmm. in London, Ben Fine House. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many children actually do read, uh, you know, Wordsworth for pleasure. I wish more did, but, mm -hmm. and there are literary houses to forgotten figures like Bulwer Lytton in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. I wonder, in fact, if we have to separate two things here. Mm -hmm. Just as we have sites for battles, we should have places that say, this was a very important person who conditioned the knowledge and the attitudes right. of an age. Mm -hmm. And Scott, right up till about 1920, was, for a hundred years, dominated fiction worldwide. Mm -hmm. Look at the Look at the Scott Monument. Look yes. at Waverley Station. Look at the number of tales that are it's called the Abbotsford. Well, exactly. named after <laughs> Scott. And, uh, you know, the impact kind of on landscape, tourism, uh -huh. on the ways of thinking uh -huh. culturally and aesthetically, on yes. architecture, mm -hmm. for example. Okay, mm -hmm. that was sort of a bit of a jumble, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, he was fascinated by architecture. And the other thing about mm -hmm. him, he was, he marks a change. Maybe this is a good final point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 1800, 
He's finished the Minstrel Say of the Scottish Borders. He's about to take that balladry and make it into the great poems. Lady of the Lake, Marmion, The Lay of the Last Minstrel, Lord of the Isles, which I think is so neglected. Look at that title of The Lay of the Last Minstrel. It is The Last Minstrel. He's collecting the minstrel of the Scottish Borders. It's almost the end, 1800 marks the switch from an older era into the Industrial Revolution, and Scott was the first man to have gas lighting in his house. That's right. Uh -huh. Chairman of the Forestry Commission, deeply interested in progress in railways and all the rest. There's Scott sitting in that, and I think I mentioned earlier that one of the tensions in his work is realism and romance, yes. but also mm -hmm. the rational and the prudent and progress versus the supernatural. Mm -hmm. Look at the work of James Hogg. Yes. The reversible interpretation of novels like The Master Ballantrae, even in Stevenson. What you get in the 19th century is that view back to tradition and the supernatural, but also that deeply ironic and sceptical way that says, but this could all be psychologically explicable. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, all these novels, mm -hmm. Confession Justifies Sinner, Master Ballantrae, they can be turned inside out, so there's no supernatural, there are no witches, they're mm -hmm. really crazy old ladies, you mm -hmm. know. And I think that makes for a very rich tradition, mm -hmm. which I've argued elsewhere comes to an end with Lewis Grassett Gibbon and James Barry's magnificent Farewell Miss Julie Logan, right, right. which is a wonderful ghost story, but also psychologically explicable. It could be a mad minister. Really mad minister? Yes, Where have we met mad ministers before? Well, we have met the devil. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good note in which to finish up. Say thanks uh, for that, Douglas. And uh, now what we'll do is, uh, I think we'll maybe try and light this fire. <laughs> well, that was our uh, a little journey through the life of Sir Walter Scott and his importance to uh, Scottish writing and um, and his writing in general. And writing in general, yeah. You know, a, you know, just underlined his significance as a writer well, in Scotland and within the world as in general. And I think, as you can probably tell, it's a cold day mm -hmm. here on the borders of Scotland. So I just want to say thank you, Ronnie Young, for coming thank along you. and doing this again. And for uh, interviewing Douglas in my arms. And uh, thank you to Professor uh, Gifford um, for uh, talking to us today. Thank you to Abbotsford for hosting this, for Good most time. of it anyway. And uh, unfortunately, as I say, most of it is on scaffolding, but um, it's a fantastic building. And thank you to the Association for Scottish Literary Studies for making this all possible, that's the best way of putting it. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time round, probably in the warmth of my kitchen with someone fantastic. A hot toddy and, a hot toddy and some interesting guests. Well, see you well. next time. <laughs>